Amen. Well, church, as you're having a seat, if you would, grab your Bibles and open to 2 Samuel. We're going to be in the Old Testament this morning. Uh, thrilled that you are here with us. Students, have a great time back in your class. Thanks for worshiping with us. 2 Samuel, we are continuing in a series that we're calling The Surrendered Life. So uh, the tail end of the summer here, we are taking three weeks. Last week, we looked at the life of Peter. This week, we're going to be looking at the life of David. And then uh, next week, we're going to be looking at the life of Paul. Just some snapshots to say, hey, wh- where, where do we see in the scriptures this picture of a life surrendered to the Lord? Not just a life committed to God, because we know that our commitments often fail. We know that what we say and what we strive to, often we let, we, we let ourselves down. We let God down. So what does it mean to live a life surrendered, to let God and his providence in his way and what he has called us to live in and through us. So today uh, we are going to look at David and we're going to be looking at a snapshot in his life that was, he was at the very bottom. He was at the depths. Um, He had just committed adultery with Bathsheba. Uh, He sent one of his friends to be killed, Bathsheba's husband. And so David was uh, at a crossroads And we're going to look at how David responds to being called out in his sin and how he responds to the Lord and how he responds to his friends. And then we get his response in Psalm 51. So we're going to be in 2 Samuel in a few verses, chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, and also Psalm 51, verses 1 through 12. And it's this, these two go together. It's David being found out for his sin, who he, what happened, what really went, went, went on, and then we get this beautiful um, poem, if you will, of David crying out to the Lord in Psalm 51 as a direct response to what had happened, these series of events. And we're going to look at how David surrenders his life when he was at his very depths. Can he come back from such a thing? Second Samuel chapter 12, 1 through 7, God's word says this, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him, and he said to him, and so Nathan the prophet tells him a story, tells David a story. He said, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and he grew it up with him and with his children, and it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock for the herd and prepare it for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and he prepared it for the man who had come to him, and he killed it. And then David, in his anger, was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And here's David's response to being called out. Psalm 51 verses 1 through 12, they'll be on the screen. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. 
against you. You only have I sinned and have done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your, just, in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hear, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now what's fascinating as we enter into the snapshot of David's life is that King David, the story of David, is the longest and greatest account of a single human life in all of ancient literature. Did you know that? That's incredible. The story of David, his birth, his life, his reign, his death, his rule, his ancestors, those that came after him, is the longest account of a single human life in all of known ancient literature. Not just in biblical literature, all known collected ancient literature that we have as human beings, the story of David is the longest and most detailed of any other person in human history. That's remarkable. So we get these windows and we get these incredibly detailed snapshots of what's happening in this great individual's life. The life of this one that wants to chase after God. And so here in this account, what the Bible is going to show us, what it's going to begin to teach us is what actually makes or breaks an individual life. Because we get to see all of these moments, specifically this one, and how he responds to it. And so this morning we come to something that even if your life completely blows up like it does to David right here in this moment, even if your life just explodes, what we're going to see if you have this one thing, if you got it, no matter how broken your life gets, you can still be made whole. The scriptures are going to tell us. No matter how jacked up your life gets, no matter how far to the depths you go, if you have this, you can still be made whole. But I'm almost nervous to name it for you this morning. And the reason I'm almost afraid to name it is because I think when I say it, we sort of just kind of kick back and like, yeah, I've heard that before. Or, yeah, I, if you grew up in church, you're like, oh, great, another negative word. That's so ancient. It's like we live in modern times. Surely there's got to be a better, new, cooler word for that than what you've got here. What's so special about that? Or I already know about that. But I, I don't think we really fully grasp it at times. I know I don't throughout my everyday life. See, when I, when I became a Christian, there were things in my life that needed to change. They didn't line up with the character and nature of God. I needed to change them. They were habits. They were patterns. They were sinful tendencies in my life. They didn't match up with the character of God. But try as I might, I couldn't, I couldn't fix them. I couldn't unwind them. I couldn't get out of them, right? But then as I grew in my walk with the Lord, I began to hear this word, and I began to hear a lot of old dead guys as I went into seminary and from the 17th century write books about it, right? And it was this 
this, oh, it, it sounds kind of ancient and it sounds strange and it's, it's kind of churchy, but we don't really understand exactly what it means. And this is the word that I kept running into that was seemingly the key to lasting permanent change in those areas in our life that we simply cannot unwind ourselves. And then this is the word that I kept hearing about, repentance. Repentance. And when you first hear it, you're like, oh, how old-fashioned, right? It's like, oh, who needs, who needs that word anymore? But the more I begin to read about it, the more I begin to read the Bible, the more I begin to see Jesus' even call for this in our lives, that this is the key. This word, doing this, falling into this, running toward this, is the secret to deep and permanent lasting change in the life of the believer. That without it, we're just trying to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. Right? If you can find that, if you can get to that, then this places that you keep stumbling over and falling over and over and over again, this word repentance is the profound way that we can change and find lasting hope. And so this incident with David that we kind of just jumped into is packed with all kinds of history and all kinds of details that surround it. Right? And his response to his sin in Psalm 51, he's in the depths, he's at the very bottom. This right here, this response is one of the best texts that we have, one of the best resources in all of the Bible that we have on what it means to repent from our sin. It's this incredible window into repentance, to surrender our sin and turn to God. And so we're going to take a look at that. We're going to look and see how that worked in David's life, and then we're going to see, can that work in our lives? Or is that just for King David? Is that just for these great, mighty men of God that we read about in the Bible? But this morning, as we're going to look at the call of repentance, we're going to see the call of repentance, we're going to see the context surrounding repentance, and then at the very end when we close, the power of repentance. What does it do? How does it work? And so the first thing we see is the call to repentance. God actually calls David to repentance. Did you notice that? How does he, does, how does he do this? Well, if we're going to understand really uh, the heart of repentance, we need to understand what exactly did God do and what exactly did David do here. And so uh, in order to do this, I'm not going to read the whole text, but I want to give a little bit of color and history to this incident that a lot of us know about. But I want to I paint it and maybe gain some understanding of the gravity of what's happening here. So you've got, you got to go back to um, chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. And what you have here is the story of David has these mighty men that have surrounded him. They're 30 or 40 guys. They gathered around him when he was in the wilderness, when Saul was hunting him down. King Saul was trying to kill David. There was all these events and these 30, 40 guys that surrounded David. These mighty men came around him and they saved his life. They defended him. They, they came to his aid. They stood by him in his lowest moments. These guys surrounded around David, and they, were, they became his greatest friends. They became his comrades. They were uh, people he went into battle with. They were these great friends of David's. And these same guys, when David would later become king, would become very important in David's administration and his government that he set up, Right? David later became king, so David owed his life to these men in many respects. And so now he becomes king, 
many of these men that were there with him in the wilderness when he was being chased, when he was trying to be run out of town, have high levels of important leadership in his government. He trusts them. He knows them. And one of these friends was Uriah the Hittite. All right? And Uriah has a beautiful wife named Bathsheba. And in one season, <clears throat> David sends his army out to war. And he's back in Jerusalem, and David has an affair with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. She gets pregnant. And David's got to cover this up. He's got to figure out a way to keep it secret, to hide uh, this, to hide what has happened. And so he's, he, he's, he, he's hatches a plan to cover up what's happened. And so what David does to cover all this up is he calls Uriah back from the battlefield. He's been out. He's still managing these front lines. He calls him back from the battlefield. And Uriah comes back to Jerusalem, back from the battlefield, to give David a report of the battle. He says, bring Uriah back. I need a report from the battle. So he sends uh, someone off to get Uriah. Uriah comes back. And David has this clever plan. Right? He thinks, all right, great, Uriah's going to give me an update of the battle. He's going to tell me all that has happened. Uh, and then it's going to be too late for him to get back out to the battle. He's going to say, just stay home tonight. You've been at battle for many days. Sleep in your own bed. Just stay home. He thought, okay, uh, sin covered up. Mistake um, covered up. The affair covered up. They'll think, oh, this is just Uriah's new child. But Uriah is a man of integrity. And he says, when my men and when my friends are sleeping on the ground on the front lines, how dare I eat and sleep in a plush bed in my own home? He says, I won't do it. And Uriah sleeps outside on the ground like his men in battle. And David's like, what do I do now? He's got to cover up more. Sin begets sin. And he feels like his hand has been forced. And so David sends a message to Joab. The, the commander, and David instructs Joab that when Uriah's company goes out to fight, pull back the rest of the men so that Uriah is killed in battle. He hatches this plan. But Joab realizes, he's like, well, all these guys know Uriah. They're going to know something's up here. And so the commander, uh, Joab, says, you know what? I'm just going to have to send all of the company into a very, very dangerous portion of this battle. It's going to take more sacrifice than just Uriah here. I'm sending them all in. So he sends the whole company in, and many were killed, Uriah included. And Joab sends a messenger back that Uriah is dead, and David then takes Bathsheba to be his wife, and she bears a son. That's the context of this story of Nathan approaching David, of David writing Psalm 51. And we think about this when we get to the story, when we, if we have some knowledge of who David is, maybe you've grown up in church, maybe you've studied David, but you get to this and you're thinking, how could he do this? You think about the character of David. You think about the things that he's written. You think about the poetry that he's written down. Here's a man of great leadership. Here's a man of great devotion to God, a man after God's own heart. Here's a man that loved his people and his nation. He stood up to fight when no one else would, even when he was a small boy. Here's a man who was an artistic genius. He was a poet. He was a songwriter. He was a warrior. He was a worshiper. How does he get here? Where did this come from? You think, how could he do such a thing? 
It seems to come out of the blue. And we're left wondering, how is this possible? Robert Alter, he wrote a, a wonderful commentary on First and Second Samuel on the life of David. And he points out this that I find very helpful. He says, this is not out of the blue at all. And the reason it's not out of the blue at all is if you go back and read what's been going on in the life of David, he's slowly but surely being changed. Slowly but surely he's being changed. And he's being changed by the power that he's amassed, right? The political power that he's gained is slowly changing him. People listen to him. He has influence. He has authority. He doesn't need to go out to the battlefield anymore. He just sends people to do it. He sends people to go do his bidding. Years and years of maybe taking small liberties, feeling like he was even above the rules. And you see it come to a head with this misuse of power. And it's meant to shine a spotlight on it. And David uses his power, and this word comes up over and over again as he begins to go through his life, especially later on in his administration. We see it happen even in this story. He sends armies to battle to do his bidding. He sends messengers to perform his tasks. He sends for Bathsheba to come see him, to gratify himself. And he even sends for the victim of his own murder, the one he will murder, send to his death. He's sending, 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 sending. He's amassed a lot of power. King David has. And this happens year after year after year. And what ends up happening uh, to these powerful positions, to these people that have amassed a lot of power, um, self-pity begins to happen. I love the way Tim Keller describes it. He's talking about people in positions of leadership. And he says, uh, Keller says, if you are in a leadership position, he says, you suffer a lot. All kinds of hassles, all kinds of attacks, all kinds of problems plague leaders of all kinds. And if you're not in a position of power, you simply cannot know the weight of it. He says, leaders not only have to endure problem after problem after problem, but they also have a lot of acclaim heaped on them at the very same time. Lots and lots of acclaim. People love them. People prop them up. People put them on a pedestal. People are praising them. And Keller makes the point is that when you put these two things together, what tends to happen is a deep self-pity. Keller calls it majestic self-pity. I think that's pretty interesting. They develop this majestic self-pity. Because here's what leaders begin to say. And here's what we can begin to say in those moments. No one knows how much I suffer. No one knows what I've got to go through to deal with this, to lead these people, to manage this, to be the boss of this, to have to hold this thing up. No one understands what I have to go through. No one knows the sacrifices that I've made behind the scenes. No one knows what I've had to endure to lead these people. And here's the slip. Here's what happens, and it's subtle. At first, I deserve a few breaks. I deserve a few comforts. I've earned them. Yeah, they're not quite in accordance with God's will and his way, but people don't understand. They just don't get it. I deserve this. So bit by bit, David is falling into this. 
this power, this position. He's, no one understands me. Small dose after small dose after small dose leads him to a place he never thought he would get to. That's why sin happens in our lives. No one sets off for it. Small dose after small dose after small dose after small dose. And you end up in a place you never thought you would be. So it's not out of the Bible or out of the, out of the blue. It's in the Bible, not out of the blue. It's a slow progression. Self-indulgence tipping into sin. Alder suggests that David doesn't even realize how much a train wreck his life has become. He doesn't even know it. He blows up his life and he doesn't even realize it yet. He's betrayed his closest friend. He took his wife. He eroded the trust of the people. Everything is beginning to unravel. And so what does God do? God wakes him up. God sends Nathan. And Nathan tells David a story. And it's an interesting story and it's kind of a sad story. But what's fascinating in this story is David's response to the story. Not necessarily the story itself. It's so over the top. David completely overreacts. It's lamb stealing, right? The rich guy stole a lamb from a poor guy to feed his traveling friend that came in. And David's like, this guy needs to be killed. Nowhere in ancient literature is lamb stealing a capital offense, right? It's not a good thing, but it's not like off with his head, right? He's so over the top. David gets furious. He's like, this guy deserves to die. Does this man think there's no justice in my kingdom? Who is this man? And in what is the most direct sermon application ever recorded in the history of the world, how would you like this if this happened, right, every week? Nathan's like, it's you, right? It's like, whoa. I mean, that was, that was quick. That was real quick. He says, you're the man. God sends Nathan and he sends him to tell him this story. He doesn't just call him out right away because he doesn't want to condemn David. He wants to convert him. He wants to get his attention. God sends Nathan not as a sword to crush him in the midst of his sin, but more like a scalpel, a directing response to cut out the parts that need to be cut out. Take out the tumor. So in other words, God is calling David not to condemnation, but to repentance. Repentance is his only hope now. It's the only way for David to put his life back together. He's got to surrender his sin. He can't fix it. So what is repentance? What is this old churchy word that we keep hearing about? Repentance is killing the sinful habits in your heart that are killing you, putting them to death. John Owen, the old theologian, says that it's called the mortification of sin, the putting to death of sin. The Christian life is, is a lot about life, things that bring us life, but it's also about death, things that we need to put to death that would be no longer, that would no longer abound and remain in our lives and in our hearts. And we're talking about King David here, remember? The most detailed life story in all of ancient literature one of the most powerful, most known, recognized men in all of history. The small details of his life, we are still talking about 3,000 years later. 
and they're being discussed all over the world. So church, if sin can creep into the life of David, it can surely happen to you and I. It can surely happen to you and I. So how do we repent? How does David repent? The context of all of this, the context of this repentance to find deep and permanent lasting change, right? How do we do that? That all sounds fine, but I think here's what we, here's what we want to do when we hear that. We're like, okay, great, repentance. Okay, uh, Sean, give me the steps. Give me a bulletin or give me a bu- my bullet points. I'll take it home. I'll read it over. I'll think about it. Uh, and then in my own private way, in the comfort of my home or where, where, wherever I want to work this out, I will do it on my timeline as I see fit in the ways that I think are best for me. Give me the steps and I'll figure it out on my own. That's what I want to do. But that, it doesn't work that way. Why? Because we never know we're sinning when we're sinning. Or rarely. Look at David. When he sent for Bathsheba, he didn't feel like an adulterer. Felt like a lover. This is, this is the right thing. When David gave the order to have Uriah killed, he didn't feel like a sinner, he felt like a general. This is what I do all the time. I make decisions. I gotta put people on the front line to advance the battle. I'm just doing what I need to do. He can, you can excuse anything if you're not careful. I'm always doing things like this. Our greatest flaws, the habits of our heart that are killing us, we often don't clearly see them ourselves. We are not, we are painfully unself-aware as people. Right? We often don't see it. So how do we repent? How do we, how do we grab hold of this life-changing repentance that's lasting, that's permanent? I think this is the answer. What happens to David? Friends. Friends. Spiritual friendships. Radical community. People that know you. People you trust. People that trust you. Nathan was David's friend. He wasn't just some cleric. And David, in a million years, would have never seen what he saw without Nathan. Proverbs 27 famously says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And just a quick challenge for us as we're drawing to a close is, do you have Nathans in your life? Have you invited people to speak into your life? Are you a Nathan in someone else's life? Do you have permission in other people's lives to go in and help them see where they're not living in line with the character and nature of God, what they've called them to? Do you make it safe to have people come talk to you? Or when they try, when they try to tell you what's really going on, do you get too devastated, too upset, or too angry that it just stops right there? Do you have Nathans in your life? Have you given them the freedom to operate in your life? This is so important. We're dead without them. We can't see without them. Church, this is so important because the context of repentance is friendship and deep community. You can't learn repentance like this, like you learn to fish. Like, oh, I'm going to go on YouTube, and I'm going to watch some other people and figure it out. I'm going to go buy all the right stuff at Academy. And on my own time, on my own timeline, where I can fit it into my life, I'm going to go try to figure out this thing called fishing. 
and I'll get slowly better over time. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. So the call of repentance is found in Psalm 51 here. Verse 4, David says this, Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. The first thing we see is this. We need to recognize the standard for what is righteous and what is evil, and it's found in God. God is the straight edge. He determines what is good and what is evil, not us. You're going to hear, you, we hear this all the time. It's, it's the new mantra of our day. Follow your heart. If it feels right, go for it. Let conscience be your guide. Just go for it. Follow what you think is best for you. That's so much of the advice that we're given all the time. The, the problem is, is that, I mean, we'll use extreme examples here, but serial killers have been doing that for years. Right? If you just say, follow your heart, it's, it's going to tell you what's right and wrong. That's crazy. Another extreme example, Hitler did that. Look what that, where that got the world. He was following his heart. There must be a standard above my own heart that I can look to to see if my guilt is true or false. There's got to be. And David recognizes the standard. And he doesn't say this. This is important. He doesn't say, I've sinned in my parents' sight. He doesn't say, I've sinned in my friend's sight. He doesn't say, I've sinned in my own sight. He doesn't say, I've sinned in the culture's sight. He says, against you, you only. He uses that double, you, you, to highlight the gravity. I've sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David sets God as the standard for what's good and evil. David takes responsibility. He says, I, I did it. I've sinned. It's unlike in the garden account where it says, well, the woman made me do it. David takes responsibility. And he begins to change. He looks at God's standard. And he takes responsibility. And then we see change begin to happen as you go down in this song. When you surrender your sin to God, that is the time you begin to see change bubbled up. Repentance Deep repentance, knowing you've wronged God and you turn to him and him alone, not just the fear of consequences, not just I'm afraid of what I might lose or what, might, what it might cost me, but going to God, the very source, and repenting. Then we begin to see change. We take responsibility. We start to find healing. And finally, he gets to the heart. Repentance gets to our very heart. Psalm 51, 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. What's happening here is that David was as low as a person could go. He was in the depths when he understood the enormity of what he had done. And some of us get there when we're faced with the realities of sin in our lives. And some of us stay there and we're crippled with shame and self-doubt and we can't get out of it. But David comes up and he looks to God and he says, open my lips, may my mouth declare your praise. His joy is back because he looks to God. He doesn't just stay in doubt and shame and condemnation. He came to hate his sin, but not himself. He came to hate his sin, but not hate himself. 
That's how he can move forward from it. In Psalm 51, David tells us, against you and you only have I sinned. He understood his primary offense was against God. He wasn't just repenting because people were mad at him. He wasn't just repenting because he was afraid of the consequences that might bear down on him. He had truly sinned against God and he turned. And he turned. He wasn't just mitigating consequences and that behavior came right back afterward. I promise I'll never do it again. Six weeks later, guess what? It's creeping back up. That's a sign that the heart hasn't changed. Repentance hasn't taken full, full set. Right? It's that moment where you're having a conflict with a friend or a spouse, and it's, I'm so sorry, I will never, ever, ever do that again. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe that I, I, I'll never do that again. And they said, that, it's over. We, I can't, we can't move forward. I'll never do it. And then you see behavior change, at least for a little while. That's a sign that I was just afraid of the consequences, but my heart wasn't truly repentant yet. David says it's got to get deeper than that. The word says it's got to get deeper than that. That sin still has great power over you. It's not yet defeated. David saw that it was against God that he had sinned. He says against you and you alone. David is saying in Psalm 51, he said, I was committing, before I was committing physical adultery with Bathsheba, I was committing spiritual adultery. Long before I committed adultery with Bathsheba, there were many small steps that led me to spiritual adultery against you and you alone, God. And the power for all of this, the power to live a surrendered life of repentance, David says, the reason I went after the love of someone else is because I was not finding rest in your unfailing love. So I looked for it in all the wrong places. According to your unfailing love. That's the way that David killed the sin in his heart. and was able to surrender over. He doesn't just look at the punishment. He didn't just look at the consequences or even what he was losing. He looked at God and the loss of relationship with God. And that began to change his heart and warm his heart. And as we close here, you may be saying, well, that's great. That's King David. Like, his assurance is incredible. He just has this connection with God. I mean, he's wrote half the Bible, it seems, right? It's like, I mean, I'm, I'm just me. Like, I don't know if I have that assurance, Church, we have even more assurance. Why? Because centuries later, Jesus also confronted a woman caught in adultery. Remember that story? Jesus confronted a female David, if you will, in the same situation, called out. And did he say, forsake your sins, then I'll condemn you no more? Is that what he said? Did he say, forsake your sins, then I won't condemn you? One caught in adultery? One caught in sin? No. That's religion. That's fear of consequences. That's just another way of saying, if you're really good, 
If you can prove to me that you'll figure this out and you'll get it, then I'll give you another chance. Forsake your sins and I'll condemn you no more is not what Jesus says. Jesus looks at this woman ashamed and condemned in her sin. He says, neither do I condemn you. I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Slight difference, that's the gospel. What Jesus did is give her the gospel. Jesus does not say, you need to sin no more, then I won't condemn you. Jesus says, because I have taken the condemnation, your condemnation upon myself, because I got got all the things that David prayed God would not give him. Jesus took all those things in that prayer. David says, don't cast me out from your presence, God. Jesus comes along, and the cross, he was forsaken for you and I. David says, don't break me, God. And Jesus was crushed for our transgressions on the cross. Jesus got all the things that David was praying to God that says, do not give me those things. God did not give them to David, and he did not give them to us because Jesus got them. By faith, we believe in this good gospel. We get God, not condemnation. That's the glorious reality of Jesus. And when Jesus says to you, I've taken your condemnation and your sin, go and sin no more, that frees us to live a life surrendered. That frees us to repent and turn to him fully and freely. No longer are we shackled by the bounds of religion that say clean it up and then I'll approve of you. Jesus says, I don't condemn you. And let that be our fuel to repent and go forth in a godly life. Because the love of Jesus fills that emptiness that's the very cause of how we fall and where we fall and why we fall. Jesus fills us up in that very place. The gospel melts our hearts. The gospel changes us. It frees us. It forgives us. The gospel does it. Jesus looks at your sin and says, I don't condemn you because I took it all for you. Now go in that love and sin no more. Let's pray together, church. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for a window into the life of David. God, we thank you that You've shown us the pathway to repentance of true and lasting change. God, I pray for those in here right now that there is things in their life that seems to creep up and pop up that they keep stumbling over and tripping over and they can't figure a way out. God, I pray that they would go to you. They would look to you. Lord, they would repent and live a life surrendered to you and your purposes, not, not, not based on their own work, but the work of Jesus on the cross that he did for us, that he took our condemnation, that he took our shame. And then out of that fuel, out of that love, out of that very place of healing, out of that place of forgiveness, out of that place of new life, we can go and sin no more. We can find true and lasting change of the things that plague us because of the power and work of Jesus. Lord, restore our joy where we don't have it. Lord, bring into our lives Nathan's that need to say hard things in difficult times. 
and walk us through and be there for us and with us. Lord, do a work that only you can do, that we can live our lives surrendered to you and your way and your purposes for your power and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Church, let's stand and worship.